where I grew up, our neighbors had a vineyard. I remember playing football in our backyard and stopping to eat so many grapes, I'd get a stomach ache. <laughs> I have memories of throwing grapes at my sisters. They left great stains on their pretty dresses. <laughs> For some reason, the owner of these grapevines let us gorge on as many grapes as we wanted. Uh, when they were ripe, we'd pick pails of them. We'd make grape juice and grape jelly and grape pies and grape brownies and grape fillets and grape lasagna, <laughs> grape casserole. We included grapes in everything. They became condiments or the main course, depending on how big the harvest was. But over time, the owner of the grapevines became sick. And he was no longer able to take care of his vineyard. His vines became overgrown with weeds. The grapes were smaller. Each year, the harvest dropped significantly until there were only grape cadavers available. You do know that's what raisins are, don't you? Well, now, in contrast to our neighbor's negligent vineyard, I'm told the largest vineyard in the world is over 250 years old. This vineyard is located in England, and it's simply called the Great Vine. This vine grows in a greenhouse where a man and his wife, who serve as the vine keepers, have the responsibility of caring for this magnificent plant. This caring and competent couple do everything they can to keep the vine alive. And unbelievably, over 250 years later, this one grapevine still yields between 500 and 700 pounds of grapes each year. Our topic today is called Join in the Mission of Jesus. We'll be in John chapter 15. Here's the main idea. If we faithfully follow Jesus, he will make us fruitful. We're wrapping up our Discipleship Matters series this weekend. By way of reminder, here's a summary of what we've learned. If some of you missed some of these, or perhaps you're here for the first time, you can jump on our website or our mobile app. You can watch all the sermons, you can listen to them as podcasts, or even read the full-text manuscript. So we began by defining discipleship. A disciple's a believer who lovingly follows Jesus, but that's not all, and intentionally helps others follow him. A disciple loves, learns, and lives God's word. A disciple is one who loves like Jesus loves. A disciple loves Jesus more than anyone or anything else. And a disciple must deny self before following the Savior. A disciple must die to his own desires daily. And last weekend, a disciple is one who follows Jesus no matter what. I invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 15 or turn your mobile device to that section of Scripture. But I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read together verses 1 through 5 and then we're going to tag on verse 8 as well. Let's read together. I am the true vine 
and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God, now help us to understand your word, to embrace it deep on the inside, to not just allow us to be hearers of your word, but to be doers. So Holy Spirit, do your work of helping us understand and then apply your word that our very lives would change as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So by saying that Jesus, or by Jesus saying he was the vine, he's employing an image very familiar to his followers. Jesus often in his teaching used illustrations from nature, water, seeds, soil, wheat, fig trees, flowers, birds. Well, grapes have always been central to Israel's agriculture and economy, and they were found everywhere. In fact, the grapevine was the emblem of Israel, much like the bald eagle is for us. Grapes appeared on coins during that period of time from the end of Malachi to Matthew. At the time of Jesus, a golden vine hung over the entrance to the temple. Now, in our culture, it would be as if Jesus was walking through a field of corn or maybe soybeans and drawing lessons from them. But actually, the image of the vine and its fruit has far deeper lessons that we can draw. The image of the vine represented Israel's fruitfulness in doing God's work on earth. Listen to Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. But here's the bad news. Unfortunately, the people of God neglected to keep the vine nourished. And as a result, they ended up going wild, rogue, and losing their fruit. Listen to verses 12 and 13 from Psalm 80. God says, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. You know, God has always had grape expectations for his followers. Yeah, that didn't work in the other two services either. But So instead of producing sweet grapes, According to Jeremiah 2.21, his people, well, his people only offered sour substitutes. God says, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy, of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and you've become a wild vine? God's desire has always been for his people to be fruitful. 
We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, verse 28. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, God sent a flood. Noah and those on the ark with him were saved after the waters recede. Genesis 9, verse 1, God gives this call to be fruitful again. He repeats it. He reinforces it. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, since a disciple must exhibit fruit that comes from faithfully following Jesus, listen, a Christ follower who does not produce fruit is a contradiction in terms. Now, an unforgettable display of Christ's expectations for fruit-bearing followers is found in the Gospel of Matthew 21, verse 19. One day, Jesus went out for a walk. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Listen, it is unacceptable. It is unnatural for a follower of Jesus Christ to be unfruitful. Let's set the context. After leaving the upper room where they celebrated the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. During that time of the year, it's probably April, there would have been a full moon casting light on a variety of vineyards on the lower slopes of the hill. It's possible that Jesus stopped and held up a vine filled with blossoms of a promising harvest and said these words, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's a remarkable revelation. It's quite a contrast to the scene from a few days earlier. So think Palm Sunday. People everywhere, they're shouting Hosanna. They have palm branches now. A few days after that, the disciples are not in a noisy crowd. They're in a quiet garden where they're looking at the leaves of a vine as Jesus teaches them. There are three characters in this extended allegory. Number one, Jesus is the true vine. The word vine literally means root or trunk. It's that part of the grapevine that comes out of the ground. Normally, not much to look at. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, too, for he grew up among them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, in contrast to faithless and unfruitful Israel, Jesus is the fulfillment of all they were not. Jesus is saying something like this, I myself am the real vine. The word or the phrase, the true, means the trustworthy one, the genuine one, the real one. The, this claim of Jesus is a manifestation of his Messiahship. Well, there's more going on here. Jesus is who we can't be. And Jesus does what we can't do. That's the gospel. Well, this is the seventh time in the Gospel of John that Jesus used this phrase, I am. And he links it to vivid metaphors. I am the bread of life. I am the 
light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that phrase, I am, harkens all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. When God is giving Moses an assignment, Moses like, I don't want to go. And then Moses like, well, if I go, who should I tell them is sending me? Basically, Moses is saying, what's your name? God replies, I am who I am. Get this. The disciples would have got this. Jesus is calling himself Yahweh. Number two, the father is the farmer. The vine dresser is literally one who farms or tills. The gardener's primary task is to grow grapes. And in order for growth to happen, the ground must be cultivated and fertilized. Pests must be controlled. Weeds must be pulled. Roots must be watered. Vines must be cared for. Grapes must be cleaned. And vines must be pruned. A vine needs a gardener in order to produce grapes. A vineyard is planted for a different purpose than a flower garden. If you plant flowers, you do it because they look nice and smell nice. A vineyard's planted in order to get grapes. The goal is not flowers. The goal is fruit. Thirdly, you and I then are the branches, and our job is simple. If we faithfully follow Jesus, he will make us fruitful. And the only way for fruit to form is if the branch remains tenaciously connected to the foundation of the trunk. There are four levels of fruit bearing in our passage. Notice first, first part of verse 2, it says, does not bear fruit. We could call that muted fruit. Next, does bear fruit. Let's call that minimal fruit. And notice next, bear more fruit. That's the end of verse 2. We call that more fruit. And verse 5 bears much fruit. Now, one author believes 50% of all Christians bear little fruit. And only about 5% bear a lot of fruit. I don't know if that's true or not. It's not true of Edgewood for sure. So many of you are bearing fruit. John 15, 16 tells us God expects us to bear fruit. That's why we're alive today. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and I appointed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So here's the principle. God, the gardener, loves us so much and he's so committed to displaying his glory that he actively prunes and purges and purifies our lives so that we can go from muted fruit to minimal fruit to more fruit to much fruit. Question, if today were harvest day, how much fruit would you present to the gardener. Now, here's the good news. More is always possible because you and I were created for this very purpose. According to Matthew 7, 20, fruit bearing is a sign of spiritual life. Jesus said, thus you will recognize them by their what? 
by their fruits. That's how you'll know. John 15, 2, then, has caused a lot of confusion. We'll take a look at it. It seems like it's saying a Christian can lose his or her salvation. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So let me say it as clearly as I can, and then I'll unpack it. If you're truly saved, you are totally secure. Eternal life is eternal. Now, during this series, we've been lifting up the importance of disciples who make disciples. Our heart is to connect everyone at Edgewood in a discipling relationship. I would love to see that where everyone is either helping someone grow or is being helped in their growth. And if you want to be discipled, we're going to do our best to get you together with someone who can disciple you. If you want to disciple someone else, if you want to pour into someone else to help them grow, we'll work at finding someone for you to disciple. Or better yet, you could begin praying about who God would want you to disciple. Now, if you're interested in either of those, being a disciple or helping to make disciples or anywhere in between, I invite you to an exploratory meeting this Thursday night at 7 p.m. We've just launched this in a pilot way, and there are about 30 individuals involved in discipling relationships right now at Edgewood. We're using a guide called Growing in Christ The subtitle is a 13-week course for new and growing Christians. This utilizes scripture memory and Bible study to help us grow in assurance and develop disciplines for the Christian life. The first passage in chapter 1 that people memorize is 1 John 5, 11, and 12. It goes like this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. I've been meeting with a brand new believer. He's only been saved about three months. His name is Andy. He gave me permission to share about this. We just finished memorizing that passage, that amazing promise of eternal security. In our first study, we went over this question, which of the following changes have you experienced in your life? This is a copy of his book, so at the bottom of page 12, top of page 13. So I said, Andy, have you experienced inner peace? Check. Have you experienced new awareness of sin? Check. Victory over sin? Check. New love for God? Check. Desire to read the Bible? Check. Attitude changes? Check. Sense of forgiveness? Check. New concern for Others, I can't think of anything more exciting and more worthwhile than to spend time helping a newer, newer believer understand the Bible and begin to grow as a Christ follower. Now, let me circle back to verse 2. Here's a simple explanation of a cut-off and thrown-away branch. 
comes right from the context. You see, just hours earlier, or in John 13, 10, Jesus announced that there was a traitor on the team. He said, and you are clean, but not all of you. Who is he referring to? Judas. In John 17, 12, Jesus said, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Judas had no fruit because he had no faith because his God was greed. And as a result, he was cut off, thrown into the fire. Now, let's ask this question. How do we move then from little fruit to a lot of fruit? How do we go from minimal fruit to more fruit to much fruit? Well, if you and I faithfully follow Jesus, he will make us fruitful. I see three ways for us to grow more fruit right from this passage. You're not going to like the first one. Expect pruning. Notice the last part of verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. So the person with false faith is cut off. The faithful follower is cut back. If the branch is not fruitful, the farmer removes it. But if it bears minimal fruit, he prunes it. So we will have more fruit. I like the old English in the Adams-Clark commentary. It reads like this. The branch which bears not fruit, the husbandman taketh it away. But the branch that beareth fruit, he taketh away from it everything that might hinder its increasing fruitfulness. Now, it makes sense to us that the gardener would remove the unproductive branch uh, but we don't really like that he prunes the productive ones also. Jesus performs the ministry of pruning and purifying, would you note, on every branch. That means no one is exempt from the cutting and cleansing which comes from the caring hands of our gracious gardener. Now, some of us think productive branches just might need a gentle trim. <laughs> but personal pruning is often way beyond what you and I think we need. During certain times of the year, some grapevines are reduced in size by 80 to 90 percent. I'm told that most grape growers fail because they don't prune enough. Well, good pruning creates a strong root system. It improves the health of the vine. And most importantly, it increases the yield. Some time ago, I watched a video about a vineyard in California that covers 30 acres, and I learned it takes 500 man hours to prune 13,000 vines. The wife of the gardener of the grapevine in England spends about three months a year scraping branches with a knife in order to, to remove loose flakes of bark. She does that because grapevines have numerous parasites. Pruning must take place in order for grapes to grow. You and I have been reborn in order to reproduce. 
But the only way that's going to happen is through a painful purifying and purging process. Pruning yields a bigger and better crop. You think about it. We all need this because we come into the Christian life with our flesh and the world in us. And isn't God gracious to not hack it all away at once or we'd never survive? But if we want to grow, we've got to let some things go. One author wrote about a large grapevine on the fence he shared with his neighbor. So he and his family were looking forward to enjoying some juicy grapes that fall. A couple days later, the new neighbor noticed outside his window that the guy who owned the grapevine was out there just hacking away at the vine. So the new neighbor went outside and said, I guess you don't like grapes? The neighbor replied that he loves grapes. Well, seeing the confusion on his face, the gardener explained, well, son, we can either grow ourselves a lot of beautiful leaves filling up this entire fence line, or we can have the biggest, juiciest, sweetest grapes you and your family have ever seen. We just can't have both. So let's go back to the purpose of a vineyard. Because the goal is to grow grapes, the focus is all about the fruit, not the luscious leaves or the creative colors that people might want to look at. Everything else must be sacrificed for the sake of the harvest. I wonder, anybody being purified or pruned right now? If not, get ready because it's coming. Ponder these points. First, God does not prune us indiscriminately. Because he always follows a precise plan, he knows what he's doing. He's working to make us more like Christ, and so he only removes what is necessary, and he avoids unnecessary injury. Number two, pruning involves pain. The father's pruning knife is sharp, but it is not designed to ultimately damage or destroy us. And he uses all sorts of unpleasant things to prune us. Circumstances, failures, ruptured relationships, illnesses, trials to get us to bear more fruit. And third, pruning can last a long time. Some of you are like, amen. The pruning process may last longer than a day or a week or even a year. <laughs> we, we really can't say something like this. Well, I've been through that and I'm glad there's no more pain coming my way. In fact, the longer a grapevine is alive, the more pruning it needs. Some of us who've been saved a long time it's easy for us to look at newer believers and go, man, they got a boatload of problems. But listen, the longer we're alive, our categories harden, bitterness can take over in our lives, a judgmental spirit can come up. The longer we walk with Christ, the more pruning we need. So is God pruning you right now? If so, get this. God's not doing it for your pain. He's doing it for your gain and for his glory. 
David realized that when he wrote these words, Psalm 119. You might want to jot this reference down. It's incredible. Psalm 119, 67 and 71. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. Then he's even able to say these words. It was good for me to be afflicted. Because, or so that I might learn your decrees. So do you want to be more fruitful than you are right now? Uh, The only way for that to happen is to go under the knife. Number two, allow the word to wash you. (laughs) Look at verse three. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are clean. That's what the gospel does. But in the natural course of time, a branch will grow rapidly, but not necessarily go where it should. Left to itself, where does a branch go? It heads south. Where the grapes go in the dust, the dust turns to mud, mildew can come. So a gentle gardener will pick up the branch, wash it off, tenderly tuck its tendrils back into the trellis so it can do what it was created to do, to bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, if you've been playing around in the muck and the mud of sin, Oh, allow the heavenly gardener to clean you off and pick you up. And sometimes he sends discipline our way in order to get us back on track. So these painful measures are designed to bring us to repentance so that we can bear fruit again. Someone called this the best good news you didn't want to hear. Remember, the gardener corrects in order to redirect. Hebrews chapter 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. That's true, (laughs) rather than pleasant. But later, it yields, listen to this phrase, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Hey, the gardener has plans for you. And his actions are intended to move you towards the place he wants you to be. Sometimes he disturbs our slumber so he can shock us with growth. God's pruning is always intended to be redemptive and restorative. He's more interested in propelling you toward fruitfulness than he is in punishing you. So is there minimal fruit in your life? If so, prepare for some pruning. Because if we faithfully follow Jesus, he'll make us Fruitful. I love the prayer found in Psalm 80. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we'll call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Number three, stay connected to Christ. In verses four and five, we see the first commands in this passage. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So to abide means to stay. It means to dwell or remain. To settle in for the long haul. (laughs) Jesus is saying something like this. Live in such a manner that you are at home in me and I'm at home in you. The word abide is used 11 times in John chapter 15. It must be important. In the Gospel of John, it appears 40 times. John's letters, 27 times. This is a call to vigilance. You and I must stay closely connected to Christ at all times. And so if you abide in Christ, you will produce fruit for the glory of God. Fruit happens when we hold on to Christ. A branch doesn't struggle to grow grapes if it stays connected to its life source. I wonder if some of you think something like this. Man, fruit bearing is so hard. It's just for those super saints. Actually, it's not hard to bear fruit. What's hard is for us to be faithful because the fruit is the result of being faithful. If we want our baskets to be full of fruit, then we must stay connected to Christ. Faithfulness is our obligation. Fruitfulness is God's concern. It's not a matter of me trying to get some fruit to flourish. My task is to obey, to trust, to abide, and he will grow fruit in me and then through me. My responsibility, your responsibility, is to stay as closely connected to the vine as I can. If we faithfully follow Jesus, he'll make us fruitful. Discipleship is all about having a close, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. The phrase, in me, is used six times in this chapter. I wonder if some of you would say, well, I'm in church, or I'm in religion, but the key is to make sure you're in Christ. Apart from Christ, you will not be able to grow fruit. For apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. The word nothing means not even one thing, not the least thing. So our work and our witness, completely worthless if we try to do it on our own. So what does bearing fruit look like? Stephen Cole suggests three basic fruits you and I should see as we stay faithfully connected to Christ. Number one, we become more like him. Colossians 1.10, so walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work with incre- and increasing in the knowledge of God. Secondly, we behave more like him by living out the fruit of of the Spirit, Galatians 5. But the fruit, oh, let me just pause there to say, have you noticed that that's in the singular? It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit, meaning there's nine and we can pick and choose which ones we want. No, the fruit is all nine of these. 
And they're all interconnected. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And thirdly, we're burdened for souls like he is. John 4.35, Jesus said, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. A few years ago, I was curious to see what our backyard, our neighbor's old backyard, looks like. So 50 years later, I contacted the woman who now lives in our house that we grew up in. I asked her to take a picture of our neighbor's backyard. What do you think we found? Nothing. Not even one grapevine. Zero, zilch, nada. No trace of any grapes or grapevines or grape cadavers anywhere. Listen, if you have the courage, it'll take some courage. Uh, take a look at your life. If you can't find any fruit, uh, you need to figure out why that is. Because it could mean that you've never been connected to the vine through the new birth. It could also mean that you're choosing to willfully sin and you need to repent of some sin in your life. You see, the Christian life is a, a supernatural life. None of us can live it apart from a dogged dependence on Christ. We can do nothing apart from him. All our attempts to produce Christian character will be fruitless and frustrating apart from cultivating a close relationship with the vine. So have you been drifting spiritually, neglecting the spiritual disciplines? A branch disengaged from the vine will dry up and decay. It's time to strengthen your attachment to him. James 4, 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. As the playwright George Bernard Shaw was nearing the end of his life, a reporter came up to him and asked him a question. If you could live your life over and be anybody you've known or any person from history, what would you be? His answer is very sad. Shaw thought for a moment, and he replied, I would choose to be the man George Bernard Shaw could have been, but never was. Be the man or woman God has created you to be, because he has formed you for fruitfulness. Expect some pruning, allow the word to wash you, and stay connected to Christ. And if you do, you'll have more fruit than you can handle. It's time to ask Christ to take our lives and use them for his glory because apart from Christ the vine, we are nothing and we can do nothing. If we faithfully follow Jesus, he will make us fruitful. I close with John 15, 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove and so prove to be my disciples. Listen, when you bear much fruit, you give evidence that you're following Jesus, evidence that you're a disciple. And when we faithfully follow him, we will intentionally help others do the same. And that's fruit that will last. Recently, Matt Williams was teaching in Mainspring. That's our, uh, our young adult ministry. And he asked a question. He said, how many of you are involved in a discipling relationship? Nearly every one raised their hand. I love that. 